St. James, everybody, and to everybody watching on the live stream, we're glad that you're with us too. I have a handful of announcements here. I'm going to try and uh, sprint through these pretty quickly. Uh, go ahead and read the uh, back of the bulletin whenever you get a chance to look at the notices. Um, everything's on schedule for today. Uh, remind you again, um, if you're interested, Angela and I will be here at five o'clock tonight, and we'll be praying uh, with each other for the church, and if anybody wants to join us, a handful of people have joined the past few weeks, and it's just, I don't know, I think it's kind of a, a sweet time. So please feel free to uh, come and join us here at 5 o'clock tonight. Uh, Tuesday morning men's Bible study is on, but Tuesday evening youth group is not meeting this week. Stockies are out of town, and uh, they're going to take Holy Week off. Saturday morning uh, women's Bible study also not meeting this week. Next Sunday, uh, let me uh, remind you of this, that on Easter Sunday we're not going to have uh, it's, the services will be normal, uh, 9 o'clock and 10.15. After the worship services, though, uh, Sunday school-age kids are invited to downstairs, and then they'll go outside for an Easter egg hunt. The youth group has put together a bunch of Easter eggs, so that'll be fun. That's after both the services next week. Um, Monday, Thursday, worship at 7 o'clock p.m., Good Friday worship at 7 o'clock p.m. here as well. I don't think you need to sign up uh, online to come to those. Just show up. Okay, uh, can I do... Uh, couple things real quick here. So last week, uh, we installed the deacons and deaconesses, and I, it was a huge omission on my part to not say this. So when we as a church called the deacons and the deaconesses to, to this role, it's not so that they will do the work, it's so that they will lead us in doing the work. And I should have totally said, these aren't the people that like, oh good, somebody's doing that, good for them. It's that we, they want to help guide us to serve with them. 
And so there's all kinds of opportunities. If you want to work with the youth group, there's, uh, you know, go see the deaconess in charge of that. If you want to do, if like your gifts are uh, maintenance stuff or take caring, uh, t- taking care of stuff, go and speak with uh, the, the Hardings or the Brinks. And uh, there's all kinds of opportunities. Sandy Hall, uh, Shanna Covarubias, uh, go meet with them and say, hey, I want to be involved. You don't have to be in charge. That's what they're doing. You can do as much or as little as what you're capable of at the moment, and they can help guide you in that direction. So go speak with one of the elders or deacons or deaconesses. I mean, we're all supposed to be deaconing, right? I mean, the, the word means service. So we're all supposed to be serving. It's just that God raises up some people to help us do that, and that's what they're there for. Okay, uh, two more things. One is I, I had uh, sad news. Uh, Norval Guzwell, who some of you will remember, uh, was the really sweet man who would pass out the bulletins at the entrance before... Um, you know, before COVID hit, passed away yesterday. And it was kind of, um, it was kind of a long time coming. He struggled. Uh, he's been struggling really hard for the past four or five months. His service is going to be here uh, on Good Friday morning at 11 o'clock. And if anybody wants to come, you're more than welcome to. That would actually be encouraging. He didn't have a lot of family. Uh, his wife uh, passed away a few years ago and they didn't have kids has a niece who's been just completely devoted to him, who's been taking care of him the past 10 years. But what I, want to do, I do want to say is um, the family has asked if we could provide a meal for them after the service here. And so if you can help out at all in any way, either preparing food or coming and helping serve food, if you can see Jen Weber or Tina Inge, I believe that Jen is out of town this weekend, but you can text or call her. Tina is back in town, so you can speak with her. Um, that'll be Friday, okay? Jen will be here today? Okay, good, she hasn't left yet. All right, good. So you can speak with Tina this service or Jen next service. Uh, Okay, and then one last thing. I know this is a lot. I'm going to preach a mini-sermon at you if I can. This is not for you guys. This is for our live stream people. And I want to be careful because uh, some of you are not able to attend worship right now for health reasons, and I want you to remain safe and to be careful. I'm not trying to put a burden on you um, that you should not be carrying. Uh, stay at home, please, and continue to watch on the live stream. But if you are, um, I'm glad that the live stream is here and that anybody who wants can watch it. But if you're at home and you're watching and you could be here, but it's easier just to stay at home and watch. I would strongly encourage you, I'm not saying that you're sinning by not being here, but I would strongly encourage you to come back to worship. There's something special about being with God's people physically that finds its heart in the sacrament, which you can experience at home. And so uh, if you can't be here, please stay home. But if you can be here, please, I know it's been easy for us to kind of sleep in and maybe watch it later, or it's just easier just to stay home and watch it. But please, I crave for you to be back. I think that your heart probably craves for Christian community too. I'd like to invite you to come back. Next week is a good time to do it, Easter Sunday. If you can, please come. If you can't, please stay home and we'll continue uh, doing the live stream. I will bring you communion. If you can't come here in person, uh, let me know. That's encouragement. That's not law. I'm just trying to encourage you. I love all of you guys. And so, and I know I'm preaching to, to, to the choir with you guys. That, that, that's uh, much shorter than my next sermon. I apologize for... Um, taking up our time, so much time with the notices. I hate to do that. Can you guys stand with me? And then can we pray? And I'm going to pray that God would meet with us this morning and really give us uh, himself, his presence. Let's pray. Uh, God, we need you so bad. You know uh, it would be the height of hypocrisy and everybody would roll their eyes if I stood up here and tried to pretend like I'm a good guy and uh, I'm not selfish and I'm not hypocritical and uh, um, God, I need you so much. I need you. I don't just need information from your word. I need you to come and meet with me this morning and to offer me yourself, your, your forgiveness, yes, but yourself. That's what I want. And so God, please, as we sing your praises and as we read your word together and as we um, think about uh, what you've said in Philippians 2, can you give us yourself? Can you come and meet with us and transform us and shape us into the people that you want us to be. We're going to leave that up to you, and that means that we're going to give the glory to you too. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Let's continue in worship in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. 
We pour out our souls to you because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Please stay standing for the hymn. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Zechariah 9. This is the Old Testament reading that Jesus is intentionally fulfilling when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 15. Glory to you, O Lord. So we have a choice on Palm Sunday. I mean, one of the things that we can do, and I, I try to mix it up every other year, is we can read the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. And what that means then is that, of course, on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, we're going to read the story of his crucifixion. But I realize that not all of you uh, are able to come on uh, Thursday and Friday. And what I don't want to do is not ever on a Sunday morning read the account of Jesus' death on the cross. And so every other Palm Sunday, it's a good idea to just read the story of Jesus' death, which that's what I'm going to do now. This is from Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed them in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
The epistle reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And as you guys will all recognize this. I actually preached on it a year ago when we were working our way through Philippians. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul, in this text, uh, has, he's got instructions for us. He's telling us, like, well, in the, in the whole book of Philippians, actually, in Philippians uh, 1 and 2, he's saying, you need to love and be self-sacrificial towards unbelievers, chapter 1, towards believers, chapter 2. This is going to cost you something. To, uh, this is a, it's kind of a piggybacking on the sermon from last week, too. Um, Giving up power means becoming a servant to somebody else. And we're called to exercise the power of the gospel by giving up our power. And that means that it means being a servant or a slave. It's going to cost something. You're going to suffer, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. So he's, he's telling you, that's the directions. Be humble, be self-sacrificial, expend yourself to serve the other. So that's the first thing he says in verse 5. But then he's going to also tell us that here's why. It's because that's what Jesus does and is. Now, he doesn't mean you should do it because Jesus did it. He means you can do it because, he, because Jesus belongs to you now and gives you the power, gives you the motivation, gives you the identity so that you can do it. Paul always does this. There's directions, but those directions always find their base motivation in who we are in Christ. It's never you need to love and other people because that's what you just got to do. It's because Jesus is doing that, and in Jesus you can do it too. So, that's what Paul does in our text here. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to start with the Jesus part and then move to the directions. He starts with the directions in verse 5, and then verses 6 through 11 is the Jesus stuff. I'm going to start with the Jesus stuff and then go to the directions. So that means that there's going to be basically three things that I want to talk about this morning. One is in verses 6 through 9, uh, 6 through 8, uh, the humiliation of Jesus, and then in verses 9 through 11, the exaltation of Jesus and then we'll go back to verse 5, which is the directions for our living now. Okay, so let's, if we can start off talking about the humiliation of Jesus, starting off in verse 6. Jesus was in the form of God. Um, again, I'm kind of repeating myself from last year's sermon, but I'm guessing it's okay. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? It, it sounds kind of like he was in the shape of God. He, it's almost like he took on, you know, we have the word like morph, which means to like change appearance. Like, did, did Jesus, like, did, did God change his appearance so that, he, that Jesus looked like him? Um, actually, the word morph there, it's, it's better, you know, form is a good word if you understand form not as like physical appearance, but form like in, um, like a concrete form if you're doing construction. It's, it's a category. It's a standard. If you pour concrete into a form, it's going to be what that form is. In other words, the, word, the Greek word was actually just the word morphe. I think I said that already. It just means the category. In other words, Jesus is in the category of God. Me and you, I'm in the category of human man, right? Jesus is in a different category than that. He also, by the way, shares that category. More on that later with me. He's also human man. But his eternal category is God. That's the class that he's in. He's not plant. He's not mineral. He's not human. He's not animal. He's God. That's his category. So he was in the category of God, but he didn't, into verse 6, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think that the Greek is closer to the marginal reading in the ESV if you're looking in your Bible. It says a thing to be held onto for an advantage. It's, it's more like this. Jesus was in the category of God, but he did not think that he needed to take advantage of that. He was not going to use his God powers to say, well, then I don't need, to, I, I can, I don't need any of you. Like, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing fine here. I'm cool. I don't need to hold on to that. Instead, he empties himself, verse 7. 
He empties himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He empties himself by becoming human. He doesn't think that him being in the category of God, that he doesn't think that I need to stay like that. He wants to become a human, emptying himself to rescue us. Okay, so what does that word empty mean there? Well, I think that last year when I talked about this, I said the word empty there, and I'm not going to give you the whole explanation, but just a shorthand here. Empty there doesn't mean he emptied himself of his divinity. He didn't become less God by becoming human. He emptied himself of his glory and his prerogatives. But actually, I don't think that that's wrong. I mean, I hope it's not wrong. I think that that's right, biblically and in the text. But I think that it misses a major point, which I did not grasp last year when we were talking about this. But I came to see more clearly this time as I was kind of working on this text. And that is this. It doesn't mean that Jesus gave up. So when I talk about the word empty, I'm almost like, okay, what part of Jesus' divinity did he have to kind of lose or tamp down to come here to earth? That's kind of the question. And I think that that's actually the wrong way to approach it. Nothing about Jesus' divinity was tamped down. Yes, he gave up his glory. Yes, he no longer lived at the right hand of his father, but he made himself susceptible to poopy diapers and skinned knees and friends abandoning him, and getting killed. That's, that's true. But as far as his divinity is concerned, far from giving anything up, I think that the emptying is itself what his divinity is. Look, it's, let me say it this way. The emptying doesn't mean that he gives up any bit of his divinity. It actually defines what divinity is. Our God is an emptying himself God. I mean, this is what John says, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to know God, you have to look at Jesus. And if Jesus is an emptying himself God, that means that our God is an emptying himself God. In other words, being divine and, and come, becoming human, those go together. Being divine is the grounds for him to become, it's, it's not like, okay, I'm divine, but I guess I'll have to give up part of that, to, I guess I'll have to become human. That's actually what being divine is in God's economy. Well, I, I, let me give you an example to try and clarify this a little bit. Okay, do you guys know the, uh, the John Fogarty song, the uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival song, uh, Fortunate Son? So, um, it's, you know, John Fogarty was drafted. He served in the Vietnam War. Uh, but, he, I mean, he looked around and he saw, that, like, at least to his perspective, like the children of politicians, the sons of politicians, the sons of muckety-mucks in the military did not have to serve on the front lines. They either were allowed to avoid serving or they got cushy office jobs at the Pentagon. So he wrote this song basically saying, I'm not a fortunate son. That ain't me. I'm no fortunate son. I'm out here on the front line. You know, and, and he, you know when, when, he, when, when, you, when you ask John Fogarty what's that song mean, he'll say, it's the, it's, it, he say, he'll say it's the old chestnut. Rich men, rich men fight wars. What, what has it go? Rich men run wars, but the poor men have to fight them or something like that. You know what I'm saying? In other words, the prerogatives of power mean my son doesn't have to fight. I don't have to fight. I can protect him. Your sons will fight. Let me contrast that with the story of um, uh, uh, Manning Kimmel. Manning Kimmel uh, was uh, a Navy commander in World War II. His father was husband Kimmel, who was the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet in the Pacific until Pearl Harbor, and he got demoted because... Um, to some extent, Pearl Harbor was on his shoulders. But he was the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet. His son could have served a cushy job. His son could have like, been behind a desk. His son could have avoided frontline uh, fighting. But, but Manning Kimmel, his son, decided, I want to be a commander, and I want to fight in a submarine. The, most, you know, the highest mortality, or is it the lowest mortality? I, I can never figure out which one. That most people die in the Navy fighting in submarines. Like the, the odds of returning home fighting in a submarine were much lower than if you fought on any sort of surface ship. And in fact, Manning Kimmel uh, died. His, he, his ship was sunk, and he floated free because he was on the conning tower when it sunk. He was captured and then brutally executed by the Japanese, like thrown into a pit, and then him and the two sailors who were rescued with him had gasoline thrown on them and then burned alive. Manning Kimmel's thought is this. I as the son of the commander-in-chief, U.S. fleet, and better positioned than anybody else to know what fighting on the front lines is about. 
Why should we send somebody who hasn't grown up in the Navy? That's, that's who I am. My father is the commander-in-chief. Like, I'm prepared for this. I'm the one who should go. That was his take. So you have, these are the two versions. You, know, you have the fortunate son version. And frequently we look at the story of Jesus and we think, he's a fortunate son, but he gave that all up. But I think he's actually more like a man in Kimmel. For Jesus, his divinity uniquely positions him to empty himself. The problems that need to be solved can only be solved by the death of God. He, of all the creatures in the entire universe, is positioned to solve that problem. So why does that have to be the case, though? Look, I, let me ask, answer this question real quick, because some people are like, unbelievers are like this, even some Christians are like this. Why does there need to be a death at all? Like, why can't God just snap his fingers and fix everything? Well, it goes like this. I'll make this real quick. Every problem, every problem that needs to be solved is going to require a death to solve that problem. Every problem that needs to be solved requires a death. Now, it might be a small problem which requires a small death, okay? Maybe your car needs gas. That's a small problem, and it's going to cost you. You're going to have to kill five minutes on your trip to work. You have to leave five minutes early in your morning to get there. It's a small problem that requires a small death, the death of five minutes. Maybe it's uh, the death of going out and hanging out with your friends because you have a test tomorrow. And the, the problem of your test demands the death of your social life. Maybe you were going to have a cup of tea and read a good book, but your child needs help with their algebra homework. And so your time with the book and the tea is going to have to die in order to help solve that. Maybe it's a big problem, though. Maybe the problem is a genocidal, tyrannical dictator, a Hitler, for instance. And that problem getting solved is going to require the literal death of a lot of people in order to solve that problem. The size of the problem is going to demand the size of the death that it takes to fix that problem. The problem of sin and brokenness in the fall is infinite. It's universal. It expands and it touches upon every square inch of existence. And so the death that it's going to take to solve that problem is going to have to be infinite, universal, and it's going to have to, be, it's going to, have, to have the ability to expand and touch upon every square inch where that problem of the fall touches. In other words, the death of God. That problem is going to have to be solved with the death of God. That's why Jesus comes. That's what his humiliation is about. He dies. He empties himself. Not, he doesn't give up any bit of his divinity. His divinity means that he is an emptying himself God because the God who exists is the God who solves problems. The God who exists is the God who fixes brokenness. That's who Jesus is. Okay, let's move on to the exaltation of Jesus. In verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, the same thing that I had going on last time I have going on this time and it was with the last section and it's this. I used to think, that I, this is probably what I said to you last year, Jesus died on the cross, that's bad news. I found myself calling Good Friday Black Friday. Is that weird? I, I, I don't know if anybody else has done that. But it's almost like this, I mean, I know what Black Friday is. You know, I'm not a moron. Well, I am a moron, or else I wouldn't switch those up. But my, my idea of, like, Good Friday is that this is just the most horrible thing in the universe, which, of course, it is. It's the death of God, right? But Paul's point is not, okay, here's the bad stuff, but God made it up to him. He made him the Lord of the universe. Yes, Jesus had to become a human and die, but guess what? That's all gone now, and now he's the Lord of the universe, and every knee's going to bow, etc. But actually, you know what the therefore means? It means this. Because... He emptied himself and solved the problem of sin and brokenness by becoming human and obedient unto death. Because of that, he is highly exalted. His, in fact, theologians, if you ask a theologian, when does the exaltation of Jesus begin? The traditional answer in Orthodox Christianity is it, it begins not with the resurrection, but it begins on the cross. His humiliation ends the moment he is nailed to the cross, and that begins his exaltation. That's actually a good point. This word is not in, the, uh, it's not in your English, but it's in Greek. It doesn't just say therefore. It says therefore also God has highly exalted him in Greek. And whatever, for whatever reason, the ESV left the also out there. But the point is, is that Paul wants to emphasize therefore also he's trying to draw a direct connection between, between Jesus' death and his exaltation. The solving of the problem, the glory of Jesus is his death. Yes, the resurrection is, you can't ever think about his death without his resurrection. But Jesus solves the problem by dying. And he quotes this, to, to emphasize this, he quotes that, that you know, Jesus as God is uniquely positioned to fix the problems of the world. He quotes from Isaiah 45, verse 21 through 25. Can I read that to you real quick? 
Isaiah 45 is a fiercely monotheistic passage. God in Isaiah 45 is, says, I am, I am the only God and there is none. And it says this, who told, this long, who told you this long ago, this plan of salvation? He's kind of, he's, in Isaiah 40 to 55, he's talking about God's plan to fix the world. He's like, who described this to you? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. Strict, fierce monotheism. A righteous God and a Savior. There is, he says it again. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Here's the word. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And, and for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, when, he, when I read the word Lord there, it's actually not Lord. He's actually using Yahweh's personal name there whenever I said Lord, I, I, Isaiah is. Anyway, what's the point? In Isaiah 45, God says, I'm the only God. There's no other God. You have to turn to me because every knee is going to bow to me someday. The God of the Old Testament is saying, and now in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, who is it to whom every knee is going to bow? And who is it to whom every tongue is going to confess? It's Jesus. Paul takes this text in Isaiah 45 about the creator God and says, that is Jesus. The God who emptied himself and became human, who died for us, who is human forever and ever, is the Lord of the universe is the God who created the whole world. That's what being divine is. Divinity is death on the cross. Okay. Uh, thus Jesus. That's all important because what Paul's about to say next has everything to do with Jesus. Let's go back to the directions in verse 5. Paul says, have this mindset among yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul says, think this way. I want you to think this way. What, what, what he just described to us there, the God who gave up all of his glory because being God means giving up glory to empty himself for the other. That's what I want you to be. Have this mind among you. So it's directions. Be like Jesus to other people. Sacrifice your power for the sake of the other. Be a slave for the sake of the other. He says he was made in the, in the likeness of a slave in, in um, verse seven. So how are you gonna do that? Just quick examples here real quick. You have, a, you have a customer come in to your place of work, or you have a client, or you have a patient come in. Do you become, do you become their slave? Do you become their, I'm not talking about for money. I'm not talking about like the customer's always right. I'm talking about do you become Jesus in their existence? You very well could be the only point, I'm talking to Christians now, you very well, you and I could very well be the only point of contact they ever have with Jesus. Do you become Jesus? To, what does that mean? Well, I've got good theology. No, no, that's not, what, that's not what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Paul's saying, do you sacrifice yourself for them? Do you become their slave? Or do they know that, 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 that and this happens at everybody's work, eventually the customer, the client becomes an inconvenience. Or do they know that you are there, not interested in their money, but interested in being their slave for the sake of Jesus? If you do that, if you do that, you will completely undermine and subvert what they know is true about the world, where power is everything. And this person holds the power because this person holds the skill or the product or the service that I need. And so they're going to treat me like, well, you've got to come here. If you don't, if you treat them like I am your slave, you will completely undermine everything that they think is true about the way power works in the world. Because you will have power like Jesus has power. The power of emptying yourself. The power of kenosis. That's the Greek word behind emptying yourself. Let's flip this around. What if you are the client? What if you are the customer? What if you are the patient? Do you treat the people who are serving you as though they're your slave? Now, this is a little bit harder because you ever thought about this? And we've all seen this play out. We've all experienced this. Whenever you, whenever you, whenever there is a customer, uh, you know, server interaction, it's always a power play, right? You go into a restaurant and you'll see this. 
This is why uh, this is why servers, many servers, hate serving tables, and uh, this is why uh, many people hate servers, is because it's always a power play. The server has the power of I will bring you your food. I can make sure that your order is right. I can make sure that your food does not have my spit in it. And the customer has the power of well, you need my tip. I'm going to pay your company money, and that power plays out all the time, and it, it comes up in dissatisfaction. Servers rolling their eyes, or uh, Angela and I have a friend who freely admits to us that when she served in, in a fairly nice restaurant here in the Metro East, that she, if she had a customer who was even mildly offensive, that she would take their silverware before bringing it out to their table and lick all of it. We also, we, uh, we ate dinner with somebody once, at, at, again, a fairly nice restaurant here in, in, in the Metro East, and the guy we were eating dinner with, do you remember this, Angela? The guy we were eating dinner with said, called the server over and said, take this baked potato back now. I know baked potatoes, and I can tell that this was microwaved. I want you to take it back, and I want you to bring me a baked potato that has not been microwaved. And I was like, I don't want to eat here now. You know, what, what, what's, what's his point? His point is, I have money, and I'm paying for this meal, and you will do what I earn with my money. And our other friend's point, the server is like, you don't treat me like that. If you treat me like that, I'm going to get back. What are they both doing? They're using power the way the world uses power. I have money, you do what I tell you. I have the product you need, you're going to treat me the way I want you to be treated. If you undermine that, if you, treat, if you go into the doctor's office and you treat the nurse's assistant as though you're there to serve her, you will blow her mind. You know why? Because she doesn't know who Jesus is. We don't even know who Jesus is because we're used to be tra being treated like that. You will, be bring, you will be bringing Jesus into their lives and into their existence by being what Jesus is described here. Have this mind among you. Love the unbelievers and love the believers like Jesus loved us. It doesn't mean I've got good theology and I'm right. And if you want, I will teach you. Meanwhile, don't microwave my baked potato. That's not what it means, although that's what, it, that, that, that's what this guy meant. What it means is I am the slave to everybody. In the name of Jesus, I will empty myself of whatever prerogative I might have to glory because that's what my God is. And if I am a Christian, a little Christ, that's what I will be for you. I, 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 you know that I'm not, right? I'm, I'm, this is the way I should be. I'm not telling you the story of my life. I'm telling you the story as I, as, as I wish it was being written now. Okay, so how is this possible? First of all, it's impossible. That, like on, on the surface, it's impossible to treat people like this. Paul says to just do it. But he doesn't say just do it because he knows it's impossible. He says do it because it's already in you to do it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have Jesus, if Jesus is living inside of you, you already have the ability and power to do it. Well, you might say, I don't know, I just, okay, that's, okay, I might believe that theology of Christ in me and union with Christ, and that means what Christ does, I can do because Christ is working it out in me. But I don't, like, I still don't know how to do it. Let me give you some help here. Now, I want you to pay attention because this is maybe the most interesting thing I'm going to say in this sermon, which is, the bar's been set low, I realize, but... Let me encourage you to read, if you can. Before I get into this, I'm going to point you to some further reading. There's this great, there's this great chapter in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity called Let's Pretend. And it's just fantastic. And here's basically his point. I want you to go out, to, if you're going to go out to lunch, or if you're going to go to the doctor, or if you're going to go, you're going to go through the checkout line at the grocery store or whatever, here's what I want you to think. I want you to pretend that you're Jesus. I want you to pretend that you're Jesus. To say, I'm the only Jesus this person might, maybe not, maybe this person sees Jesus all the time, but, but I might be the only person, I might be the only Jesus this person sees today, and I want you to pretend like you are Jesus. I want you to pretend as you go through there and load your milk and your cereal and whatnot on, on the conveyor belt and go to checkout that you are that person's slave, that you are there to give up your life so that they can be rescued. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in this uh, essay called Let's Pretend. He says, first of all, this is what Christian life is. Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. Martin Luther says, he explains that, with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father. What, what, what does that mean? It means, at the beginning at least, pretending. Pretending that I'm a child of God. Pretending that I'm a daughter or a son of God until I can learn to live in it as a reality. He says this, about in his chapter, uh, Let's Pretend. He's talking about the Christian life. He says this, very often the only way to get a quality in reality 
is to start behaving as if you had it already, to pretend, in other words. That's why children's games are so important, Lewis says. They're always, they're always pretending to be grown-ups. They're playing soldiers or they're playing shop, but all the time, they're hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-up helps them to grow up in earnest when the moment arrives. In other words, pretend to be Jesus so that this whole in Christ thing becomes a reality. He goes on to explain it in, in full. And now we begin, this is later on, now we begin to see what it is that the New Testament's always talking about when it talks about Christians being born again or when it talks about them putting on Christ or when it talks about them, or when it says that a real person, Christ, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead, or when it talks about us being, about Christ being formed in us or when it talks about our coming to have the mind of Christ, our text. Here's what it means. It means that a real person, as you pretend that you're Jesus, in prayer, as you do this in prayer, you do this in Bible reading, why do we pray and read our Bible? Because it's a devotional good thing that God looks at and says, oh, you're praying and reading your Bible. That's a check mark for you. I like you. No, no, it's because we have to study the script. If you're going to pretend to be Jesus, you got to know how the words go. You got to know how the, you have to pray to him. You have to talk to the writer of the script. You have to get the story in your head so that when you go through the line at the grocery store, you're fully prepared to play the part. You're fully prepared to, to be Jesus in that moment, to act out Jesus because that's actually who you are. It might feel like pretending, but the more that you do it, the more it becomes real. Here's what Lewis says about that. A real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, or in that very doctor's office where you're meeting the nurse's assistant, or in that very table where the server is about to ask you what you want to drink, or in that very checkout line where the person is saying, cash or credit card to you. In that very moment, Christ is doing things to you. Here and now, it's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago teaching us what to do. It's a living man, still as much a human as me and you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you, and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments as you pretend and get used to it, then for longer periods. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which, in its own small way, has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, his joy, his knowledge, and his eternity. Let this mind be in you, the mind of the suffering Jesus, because it's already there. It's already been given you in Christ. Let's learn to pretend that we're Jesus. You're actually not pretending. It's already in you. Jesus already lives in you. As you're living this out, as you're acting this out, as you're filling yourself up on the word and prayer and connecting with him so that you learn your lines, not just your lines, but you learn the emotions and the thoughts that go along with them and the actions. Christ will be, Christ's kingdom will be expanding and growing because Jesus Christ himself will be in your doctor's office with you, will be at your restaurant with you, will be in your marriage bed with you, will be at the table at, at, at lunch with your kids with you. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray, and we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, you know that our minds are twisted back in on ourselves, and we always think about power in terms of money and possessions and uh, control and the ability to have a dynamic personality to make others do what we want to do, or the loss of those things, that we don't have power because we don't have money or control or a dynamic personality. God, help us to abandon those weird, broken dreams for the reality of the power of you emptying yourself in the person of your son and rescuing us and becoming the Lord of the universe. Help us to find ourselves in that power, Lord, in your mercy. God, help us to be good pretenders. Help us to be shaped and formed by the knowledge that we are Jesus's in our community. Make us more like him all the time, God. Help us to experience his power, the power of self-sacrifice, so that we can see the power of changed lives and healed communities. We can't do this on our own, God. We, we, as we prayed earlier, we've tried again and again and we've failed. We need you to do this through us. Help us to live out our union with your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. God, be with all the brokenness and emptiness that we're all experiencing all the time and physically and mentally and socially, morally. 
God, I pray that you would be with uh, those who grieve this morning. And especially, it's been rough uh, losing two founding members of the church in two weeks. I pray that you would give comfort and hope to Norval's family and, and us too who knew him and loved him. I, I thank you for all the service, for all the years that he performed at this church. And Paul Kelso too, God. And I just thank you for the way that you were Jesus to us through them and, and how that ripples on into eternity in the lives of our kids and the people that will come to know you through the ministry of this church who would never even know those two guys. We, we praise you for that and, and pray that uh, you would keep them safe uh, at your uh, throne until the day when you raise them up and raise all of us up new in your new creation. Lord, in your mercy. God, we can only pray these things because we are in you, because you have given us our mindset and our hearts, because you've given us your son, Jesus, and bound us to him. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Confess with me now, if you can, the words to the Apostles' Creed found in your bulletin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen. Look around, find somebody you don't recognize and start to build a relationship. Go in peace.